0: 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In chapter 8, Paul tackles the issue that the Corinthians brought up. Apparently it is the issue of eating meat that's offered to idols. And he argues that love rather than knowledge should be the key to Christian conduct. That is, that our concern for the well-being of a brother or sister, someone for whom Christ died, as Paul puts it in verse 11 of chapter 8, this should be what governs our conduct. In chapter 9, Paul seems to go off on several tangents. The rights of an apostle, which rights Paul claims that he has, why he has not made use of these rights, even though he is an apostle. His willingness to fit into any and every social situation for the sake of sharing the gospel and winning all. And then he closes by using the analogy of the Isthmian Games, which would be sort of a local Olympic Games, and the importance of discipline, and of self control, so as not to be disqualified from the race, and therefore thereby forfeit the price the prize and as I mentioned last week, in the ancient world, it was not simply the race that by which you would be judged; it was also the training, so that if you messed up in the training you wouldn 't actually be able to participate in the race and Paul is telling the Corinthians that he disciplines himself, he keeps himself under control so that he would not be disqualified from the prize. Now, if we assume that Paul is writing in a coherent manner, then there must be a connection, a flow from chapter 8 to chapter 9 to chapter 10. And I think that there is. In chapter chapter 9, which we looked at last week, Paul made three points. First of all, that he was an apostle with the rights and privileges appropriate to the office. Secondly, Paul knew what he was doing. In refusing those rights, in fitting into various social situations, in seeking to maintain self-control. And thirdly, he did not want to be disqualified from the prize, and he presents this as a real possibility. Some people today, and perhaps the Corinthians as they read this, it's like, you know, Paul, what are you talking about? You could never be disqualified from the prize. You would never fall away from the faith. You would never lose your salvation And yet Paul does present this as a real possibility. And if it could happen to him, it could happen to these arrogant Corinthians who think they possess all knowledge as though that were the key. In that vein of being disqualified, Paul now writes chapter 10, at least the first half of it. And he writes of those people of God in the Old Testament who had the privileges of being the people of God, but who fell from the faith, and they did not win the prize. And if it could happen to them, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, it could happen to you. We'll begin with the first four verses of chapter 10, um, Israel's privileges. And just a side note, these four verses in Greek are actually one sentence, this one long sentence, and Paul wants it all to be seen together. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Here he describes in really new terms the experience of Israel in the Exodus, and in the wilderness. Two things to note at the beginning. He starts out with the word for, which means that there's a connection to what, what went previously. And secondly, he refers to them as brothers. And we've seen this throughout 1 Corinthians, that Paul was always careful to let the Corinthians know that he had not rejected them, that they were still his brothers and sisters in Christ. Here there's something else, however, that goes with it, because he talks about our forefathers, our ancestors. Now, as best we can tell, most of the Corinthian believers were not Jews. They were Gentiles. But Paul wants them to see a continuity from God's people in the Old Covenant, God's people in the New Covenant. They are God's people. They are part of a continuity, and they are our ancestors, our forefathers. He begins, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact. This is a phrase he will use again in chapter 12. Paul is not presenting new information. They know this stuff. But rather, he is presenting a new perspective on what they already know. That is, the Corinthians knew the data, the information. Paul wants them to see the meaning, the importance, the significance of that data or that information. And so he talks about Israel during the time of the Exodus and in the time of the wilderness. And he finds by analogy that God's people in the Old Testament, Israel here, had the privileges that New Testament Christians do. That is, they had baptism and they had the Lord's Supper. And it's like, how is this possible? Well, first of all, in baptism, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That is, the, the pillar of cloud that led them by day was above them. And they passed through the Red Sea. The water was on both sides. Paul sees these as types of baptism. And they were baptized into Moses... Not into Christ, but Moses is a type of Christ. He was the deliverer, the one who had helped to take them out of bondage, out of slavery. And so they were baptized, as Paul sees it. And they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. That is, they ate manna that God supernaturally provided for them six days a week. They would go out and pick it, and that's what they would eat. And... They also drank water that was provided supernaturally by God from the rock. But it is interesting that Paul refers to the water and the manna as spiritual food and spiritual drink. And why does he do this? We've noticed that Paul's use of the word spiritual is quite different from that of the Corinthians. They use it to speak of something that is a bit better, a bit higher. So you have Christians... And then you have spiritual Christians, and and Paul rejects this. We saw this in chapters 2 and 3. I would suggest that there are different possibilities for why Paul uses spiritual here. First of all, both were provided supernaturally. Therefore, God, through the work of the Spirit, provided for them what they needed for sustenance. It is possible that Paul is trying to make a stronger connection with the Lord's Supper. And I actually think that this is probably more like it. I think that Paul's use of the word spiritual here is not his own word. It is the Corinthian word. That the Corinthians had come to view the Lord's Supper in a magical way. That this is spiritual food. And as we'll see in a a few verses down... Actually, what I think was happening with the Corinthians is they would go to church and have the Lord's Supper. They would have communion and then they would go eat at a pagan temple. But they felt because they had eaten the spiritual food and drank the spiritual drink that nothing could hurt them. And so now Paul is using their language to say, oh, you know, you see the Lord's Supper is spiritual. Well, they had spiritual food. They had spiritual drink. And the source of that drink was Christ himself. We get hints of this throughout the New New Testament here in the book of Hebrews that the 40 years in the wilderness was an amazing time. It wasn't merely wandering. That, In a way that I do not comprehend, Jesus Christ was with his people in the wilderness. The writer of Hebrews will tell us that they had the gospel preached to them in the wilderness. Much, much different, I think, than what we expect. And yet for all these privileges... Baptism, the Lord's Supper, the two sacraments that we have in the church today. What happened to these people? Well, let's read further in verses 5 through 10. Nevertheless, that is, in spite of all this, God was not pleased with most of them and their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things. As they did, do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. See, all the privileges did not keep them from falling into idolatry. And as a result, most of them died in the wilderness. God was not pleased with most of them. And by the way, notice the contrast that earlier when he's talking about the privileges, he said they were all baptized, they all ate, they all drank. But now he's not talking about all of them, but many of them, most of them, God was not pleased with. Now, verse 6, I think, is a key. Paul wants the Corinthians to know that he's reminding them about Israel's experiences and failures to present it as an example, a negative example, not what you should do. Don't be like them. This is what they did, and they are an example for you. And, and what did they do? What should we avoid? Well, he lists four examples, and I don't know if you see it there, but there are four specific incidents that that Paul is referring to. The first is the golden calf, and this is in verse number seven. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. Notice Paul does not mention the golden calf. He doesn't mention Moses being on Mount Sinai. Rather, he is quoting from Exodus chapter 32. That's how we know what incident he's talking about. And it is interesting what he brings out about this particular incident, because if I were to ask you, tell me about Exodus 32, you'd read it and say, well, it's a golden calf. And it's it's a Moses was up on Mount Sinai. It was there 40 days. The people got restless. That's not what Paul talks about. Paul says they sat down to eat and drink. It's so that eating and drinking again, and then they got up to indulge in pagan revelry. So you have that connection between idolatry, pagan revelry, eating and drinking. The second incident, which he mentions in verse number eight, is found in Numbers chapter 25. It is an incident in which 23,000 Israelites were killed in one day. If you're not familiar with the story, I'd encourage you to read it. Uh, It's the story of Balaam, when he was called to curse Israel, and he he couldn't do it. But then he told the Moabites, what you need to do is to tempt them with your false gods. So let me read to you the first two verses of Numbers, uh, chapter 25. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So again, there is this connection between eating in the presence of an idol and sexual immorality. By the way, I would just tell you, parenthetically, every other mention in the New Testament of eating meat offered to idols is always mentioned in the same breath with sexual immorality. They're not two separate issues. They're always put together. That if you eat a meat offered to idols, whoever is writing, whether it be in, in Revelation, it happens twice, uh, the church in Thyatira, the church in Pergamon, or when the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, when they say, there are four things we want you to avoid, eating meat offered to idols and sexual immorality always go together. And now, as, we, as this begins to sort of unpack for us that the Corinthians want to go to pagan temples and eat, What did we talk about in chapter 5? What did we talk about in chapter 6 if it was not sexual immorality? that the two, in fact, go together. The third incident, which we find in verse number 9, comes from Numbers chapter 21. Here, Israel complained against God. They were tired of manna. They wanted something else. They were tired of God's ways. They were tired of God's food. And so God sent snakes among the people and many of them died. The last incident in verse number 10 comes from Numbers chapter 14. Has nothing to do with sexual immorality, has nothing to do with food, has nothing to do with idols. What it is, is a series of incidents in which the people grumbled. And if you don't know the story, could you guess for a moment what would you suppose they grumbled about? It was the leadership. They were unhappy with Moses in the same way that the Corinthians are unhappy with Paul. And Paul doesn't say this. Hopefully they know the story. The result, the households of the three ringleaders, the three men who wanted to depose Moses, Korah, Daphne, and Abiram, the earth opened up and swallowed up their households, all the people, all their possessions, and then closed up. 250 men who challenged Aaron's leadership as a high priest God sent fire from heaven and they were toast, literally. Then people complained against Moses because these three households and the 250 men died. As a result, 14,700 of them died. Why is Paul telling the Corinthians all of this? Is he telling them, don't mess with me? You saw what happened with the people who complained against Moses. Don't complain against me. No, they are intended as an example, as a warning. Look, if you would, in verses 11, 12, and 13. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Again, Paul says, these things happen as an example for you. They were written down. In verse number six, so that you don't put your hearts on the wrong things, on evil things. Here, they were written down as warnings. Yes, even warnings for people who live after the coming of the Messiah, the fulfillment of the ages, that's Jesus. Because, you know, the Corinthians might say, well, you know, Paul, those were Old Testament folk. You know, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. They didn't know about the Messiah coming. We live after the fact. And so, yeah, that might have happened to them, but it certainly would not happen to us. And I've talked to people who still share that view today. That Well, that's Old Testament stuff. We're New Testament. We don't need to worry about losing our eternal salvation. Paul says, listen, if you think you are standing firm, you need to be careful lest you fall, as the Israelites did. Then he comes to verse 13, which is probably the best-known verse of chapter 10, and for many people it's one of the best-known verses in all of 1 Corinthians. I fear, though, it's usually quoted out of context and usually understood out of context. What is Paul trying to say? I would begin by suggesting that he is responding or anticipating their argument. He has warned them in verse number 12, be careful. You think you might be standing, you might fall. But he wants to encourage them. He's not saying you will fall. Okay, and I think verse number 13 is meant as encouragement. It's also a warning. You might, in fact, fall. But I think the Corinthians would say to Paul, Paul, you don't understand our situation. You don't know our place in the community, the surrounding culture, the pressure that family and friends can bring on you. Well, Josh has just read to us from Acts 18 that Paul spent a year and a half there. Paul knew very well their situation. He wants them to make the right decision, and he fears that they are not. As we live our lives, we must make choices, correct choices, as spelled out by God's law, or we will make wrong choices. Oftentimes, our circumstances, our surroundings, our genes, our environment, present us with other options. Or better, they present us with reasons why we should not do what God said. Just as the serpent did to Eve, did God really say that? No, he knows better than that. And so we as God's people are told, this is how we are supposed to live. And things outside of us and things inside of us say, no, there are other options. We have plan B, C, D here. We have other things that you can do. Paul calls these things temptations. Reasons or excuses we give for not doing the right thing. Paul wants the Corinthians to know God is in control. God is faithful. Even before that temptation came into your life, God was there. God was faithful. And when that temptation is there, God is faithful. And when the temptation has passed, or you have given in to it, God is still faithful. His prior faithfulness, his prior activity, though, I think, is what what really grabs me at this point. See, if we're not careful, and I'm not sure this was a Corinthian problem, it may be just a problem that we have today, we will tend to see the world in terms of cause and effect, in which we are the cause, and then God responds with effect. And particularly after reading verses 7 through 10, these four incidents, Israel blows it big time, they do something terrible, God comes down hard on them. So that we will begin to view the universe as beginning with me, and and God is merely this all-powerful being who responds to me. I sin, God gets mad and punishes me. I do something wrong, God gets mad and punishes me. That's not the way the world is. The world begins with God. God is the one who has put us where we are. Our circumstances, our families, our jobs, our genetic makeup, our weaknesses, our strengths. God made us. And within the context of how He has made us, He says, okay, this is the way you're supposed to go. But there are things within us that say, no, don't go that way. Or, I can't, because I have a genetic predisposition to go another way. Or, Uh, I have peer pressure to go another way. And God says, no, go this way. And Paul tells him, listen, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted more than you're able to bear. Now, if you think of that, that is an astounding statement. That's an amazing statement. That God has so arranged the circumstances of my life that he knows I will be tested, I will face trials, I will face temptations, but God has so arranged my life that it will not be more than I can handle. Because God is faithful. He has made a way for me to get out of the situation and for me not to give in to the temptation, but to be obedient to him. God has provided a way out for the Corinthian believers. They just haven't been looking for it. They just haven't. And so now we come to verse 14 and finally, after chapter 8, chapter 9, and half of chapter 10, Paul will finally tell the Corinthians what he thinks and what they should do. Verse 14. Therefore, coming to a conclusion, my dear friend, Flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Finally, Paul tells us his position about the Corinthians. In chapter 8, he told us what he would do. He wouldn't eat meat if it would cause somebody else to sin. But now he tells the Corinthians, this is what you should do. And again, I would point out, he refers to them as my dear friends. He wants them to know that he loves them. And he writes what he does because of his deep affection for them. What does he write? Flee from idolatry. Interestingly enough, Paul used almost exactly the same language in chapter 6 when he said, flee from sexual immorality. And the more that I study First Corinthians, the more I began to see that there was a connection. The sexual immorality that Paul talks about in chapter 6 was very much tied to pagan worship because we know in the ancient world, uh, in various religious cults, that if you went to church or if you went to the temple, part of worship involved sexual immorality. Now, Corinthians apparently have been going to these temples not for sexual immorality, but to eat lunch because they were the restaurants of the ancient world and somehow have gotten sucked into the sexual immorality of the pagan temples. And so he says, flee, run from it, get away. I think verse 14 is, needs to be seen in connection with verse number 13. Because if, we, if the chapter ended with verse number 13, we don't have verse number 14. I think this would be our approach, because we're sinners and we're always looking for a way out. That we would say, well, Paul says that God will provide a way of escape, a way out. And so I'm going to look around and I don't really see that God has provided any way of escape. Well, no, we have verse 14, and Paul basically says, don't be looking for a way of escape, run. You know it's wrong, flee. Don't stop and think, you know, I've put myself in this horrible situation where sexual immorality is a real possibility, but I don't really see a way of escape. You don't need to look for the way of escape, you need to run. And Paul tells them, flee from sexual immorality idolatry is wrong, it is sinful, you need to run away. Now, since Paul has been so abrupt and so absolute here in verse number 14, I think verse number 15 is not to soften it, but for them to see what he's saying. He says, you know, I'm talking to sensible people, uh, and you, you need to judge. Am I telling you what is right? Yes, I am telling you what is right. No, is that right? Is that wrong? No, I'm right, and you need to see, in fact, that it is Right. And now he begins to talk about the Lord's Supper. Which again, seems to come out of left field, but not really, because he talked about baptism, spiritual food, spiritual drink earlier in the chapter. There are several things that come up here. One is the word participation in Greek, kononia, that many people are familiar with. Participation in the blood and in the body of Christ. Some people see this as supporting the Catholic position of transubstantiation. Um, and I would say no, because if you go down a few verses, he talks about participation with demons. And we certainly wouldn't argue for transubstantiation with demonic sacrifices. Okay. Um, there's something else, and I don't know if you caught it, but Paul mentions the cup first, and then the bread. If you think about it, everywhere else in the New Testament, it's always... The bread first and then the cup, right? The cup symbolizes a vertical unity, our union with Christ. We have union with Christ in the cup. It is the new covenant, a new relationship, a new contract between God and man. The bread, on the other hand, represents a horizontal unity. The bread represents the body of Christ. And the church is referred to as the body of Christ. So, when I drink from the cup, I show that I am in union with Christ, and when I eat the bread, I show that I am union, in union with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's why when we come to verse number 17, Paul really stresses this, this idea of one loaf, one body, one loaf. There's to be union within the church. Paul goes back to Israel in a positive way. And I mentioned this, I think, last Sunday, the Sunday before, We oftentimes, I think, mistakenly view sacrifices as you kill the animal and burn everything on the altar. And that would happen only with certain sacrifices. Much of the meat that was offered, only a part would be burned on the altar, and the rest would be given back to the family who had given the animal. And the family would then eat the meat right there in the presence of God. So they're eating part of the animal, the other part is burnt on the altar. But by eating the meat, they are identifying with the altar. There is a sense of connection. Now, you take the Lord's Supper, you take the Old Testament system of sacrifices, and now Paul brings it together. And he says, basically, when you eat in a pagan temple and you eat meat that's been offered to idols, you are identifying with that idol. There is a sense of participation with that idol. And then Paul goes a step further to say that it isn't the idol that people worship. It's something demonic, demons. Because as he said in chapter 8, an idol is actually nothing. It's made of wood, it's made of gold, silver, stone. It's an image. But that which is behind the image, that which is demonic, is evil. And Paul says, okay, you go to church and you have communion. You participate, you have this sense of union with Christ, union with your brothers and sisters, and then you go to a pagan temple and you participate there, and you have a sense of union with the demonic. What what are you doing? What are you thinking? Do you think, well, because you know I just came from church and we just had communion, so I'm, I'm I'm protected. I'll be safe. Paul says you've got to choose. Okay, who are you going to participate? Who will you identify with? Christ and his people or demons and their people? And he, inter- he ends this particular second verse number 22 with some very provocative questions. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Remember what happened to Israel? It could happen to you. And by the way, when we get to chapter 11, we will find out that some of the members of the Corinthian church had died. And Paul is very clear, they died because they abused the Lord's Supper. So don't say it doesn't really matter, the Lord doesn't care, just have communion then go down to the pagan temple. It doesn't matter, it absolutely does. Now we come to verses 23 through 30, and this is what I call in my notes Paul's position, part two. Um, Because Paul has told them, stop eating in pagan temples because it involves the worship of demons, because it will provoke the Lord to jealousy. Perhaps it has already led to sexual immorality. Paul has made his position clear. But there might be a few loose ends that people might say, well, what about this? What about that? What, what happens if we do this? I'm reminded of a friend of mine who used to drive his wife nuts. Whenever he would go to the doctor, the doctor would say, uh, you need to have this medical procedure done. And he would always say, well, what if I don't? Um, so now Paul is saying, don't go to pagan temples. Well, what about this? And so Paul covers the what about this in verses 23 through 30. Verse 23. Everything is permissible but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Let me just stop there for a minute. Paul is repeating what he said in chapter 6. In the NIB it has it in quotation marks, everything is permissible. That is the Corinthian position. That's not Paul's position. The Corinthians were saying, Paul, everything's permissible. And Paul is answering, yeah, but not everything is beneficial. Paul, everything's permissible. Yes, but not everything is constructive. The big difference between this passage and chapter 6 is in chapter 6 he's talking about, not everything is beneficial for me. Here he's saying, not everything is beneficial or constructive for other people. I need to be thinking about other people and not simply myself, the good of others. As he puts it in verse 24, verse 25, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience's sake. The other man's conscience, I mean, not yours. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of something I thank God for. Paul brings up two issues. What if you're going down to the local meat market? How should you approach it? Should you be very scrupulous? Should you say, was this offered at the Temple of Diana? Was this offered at another temple, the temple of Jupiter? Where did this meat come from? Because all things being equal, in the ancient world, someone would bring an animal to be sacrificed, part of it would be burned, part of it would be for the priests and all their helpers, part of it would be for the restaurant there in the temple, and there would still be meat left over. So the excess meat would be sent down to the meat market, and people would buy it. So Paul says, when you go to the meat market, the mccannery, Uh, Don't ask, where did this meat come from? Buy the meat, take it home, cook it and eat it. And it's interesting in verse number uh, 26, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. This is actually from Psalm 24, and it was the rabbinic uh, reasoning rationale for saying grace before meals. Why should you pray before you eat? Well, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and so we should give thanks to God for whatever it is that we eat. So, go downtown, buy the meat, take it home, cook it and eat it. Don't ask any questions. What if you're invited to eat at somebody's house? And by the way, just keep in the back of your mind here, in chapter 9, Paul talked about eating and Gentiles, or, you know, associating with Gentiles. I think this is where the Corinthians were upset with Paul. Paul, you say we can't go to the pagan temple... You've eaten meat that's been offered to idols because I know you went over to so-and-so's house and that's where they got their meat. And Paul says, listen, if somebody invites you over, don't ask where it came from. Now, if they tell you, by the way, this came from the local temple, then don't eat it. And not, not for yourself, because you give thanks, you can eat whatever you want, but for the man the woman who told you this, for their conscience sake, don't eat this meat. That is to say, if you don't know where it came from, you can eat it. But once you have been informed, you go down to the meat market and the person is trying to get you to buy, some, buy a roast, say, this is a good roast, fresh from the temple of Diana. Well, okay, you can't buy that because they have told you. But if no information is given to you, then you can do so with a clear conscience. Our primary concern should not be our own conscience, interestingly enough, but the consciences of others. That they might think, well, oh, well, that's interesting. I, I thought he was part of that new Jesus movement and and apparently he can do whatever he wants. So I guess they're not that different from us after all. Paul says, no, for the sake of the conscience of the other person, my rights my freedoms, I gladly give up that they might come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul wraps us all up in verses 31 through 11, uh, chapter 11, verse number 1. He comes up with three conclusions. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. What are Paul's three conclusions here? First of all, do everything for the glory of God. Even something as mundane, as daily, as humdrum, as what you eat what you drink you see God God's place in our life is not simply on Sundays and, and the spiritual things it's the everyday stuff do it for the glory of God secondly do not cause anyone else to stumble and this is a fascinating passage if we had time I could spend a lot of time here because Paul is not only concerned about causing another Christian to stumble but a non-Christian as well i have to be so sensitive to the consciences of others that I need to know what they think. If they, and I mean, I can't read their minds, but if they speak up, if they say something, I need to say, well, why did that person say that? Why, why did my host just tell me that that came from a pagan temple? I need to be concerned about others more than I am about myself. As Paul says, I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many so that they may be saved and thirdly Paul says follow my example as I follow the example of Christ and what does this mean well seeking the salvation of the lost seeking the good of many not his own and trying to please everybody in every way that is, not doing anything that would stand in their way of coming to faith in Christ. But I fear that this is still somewhat nebulous. Follow me as I follow Christ. That it should be, we should be governed by love and not by knowledge. Hang on for two more chapters. Because in chapter 13, Paul will paint for us a portrait of Jesus Christ. It's a chapter we know as the love chapter. It is, in fact, Paul saying, this is what it means to follow Christ. The love that we find in chapter 13, that is the love of Christ. And that is what we should embrace as God's people. That should dictate how we act and the decisions we make, not how much we know, how much knowledge we possess. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we are human and as such in our sinfulness we are self-centered. We tend to see you as responding to us rather than you as the God of all creation who has been faithful to us even before we came into this world. When we were infants when we were in our mother's wombs, throughout our lives you have been faithful. You knit our bodies together in our mother's wounds so you know how weak we are what peculiar weaknesses we have and then you put us here you know the temptations that we face but you in your faithfulness won't let us be overcome you will in fact provide a way out may we as your people be faithful May we give thanks for your faithfulness in our lives. May we, as Jesus was, be sensitive to the needs of others, to the consciences of others. And seek their good and not our own. We talked about a lot of things today. I ask that in the days to come, your spirit would recall them back to us. That we might meditate on them. And now we ask that your grace, your spirit would go with us as we leave this place. We do not know what this week will bring. I think we're much more aware of that today than we usually are. But you're already there. Waiting for us. In your faithfulness, you are in control we pray for those that will be traveling we pray for those that are sick and ask that you would keep each of them draw us to yourself we pray in Jesus name Amen